Our epistle lesson today is found in Colossians chapter 1, reading verses 15 through 17. He, that is Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And Father, we confess that all things have been created by your Son, For your own glory, that you, the source and the fount of all things, have appointed him to be the mediator of these great works, and they hold together today by him as well. It is in him that we live and we move and we have our being. And yet we do not live by physical bread alone. We live by every word that comes from your mouth. And so we come eager today. And we come expectant, and we ask that you would feed us, for we are hungry. And so we pray that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Just over a decade ago, I was pastoring a church in Arlington, Virginia, part of the greater Washington, D.C. complex. And I was asked to write a theological article, roughly the length of 2,500 words, on the ascension of Jesus. It was a great theological exercise in which I was taking a topic that was somewhat remote and unfamiliar to me and having to develop the idea of what it meant for Jesus to be enthroned at God's right hand, sitting down there to take up his reign after conquering sin, death, and evil. I was feeling the inadequacies of 2,500 words as there was so much to express, And it was in the process of studying and of looking through and writing those 2,500 words that I began to write some verse on the side. It was a meditative and reflective way, really not meant for anyone but myself, of condensing and summarizing what I was learning. I found myself a few days later tentatively sending an email to a young musician in our church who played in our band, and I asked him whether he would consider putting a tune to those words. I was somewhat nervous because I was putting myself out there, (laughs) and I didn't know really whether it was any good and whether uh, he would just laugh at me. His name was Andy Ziff, (laughs) and a few days later, I got a tune back, and he said, hey, I think this will work. And I was fascinated by the whole process. It was so intriguing to me. Because here was a 2,500-page article on the ascension of Jesus. And then here were three verses, less than 100 words. But it felt like the verses said so much more than the article. How was that possible? How does something like that happen? And I realized something that day about the power of poetic verse versus the power of written prose. Though I love written prose, delight myself in it, would actually consider that my home. 
And yet there was something about poetic verse that spoke the simplicity and the elegance allowed more to be said between the lines. And it's important to recognize that when we come to Colossians 1 in verses 15 through 23, because what we have here is something very akin to poetic verse. Biblical scholars are divided as to whether this is a hymn or whether it is an apostolic poem. And though they have spent many pages arguing over the difference between those two, they have recognized three things that they all agree upon. And the first is that these verses contain an elevated language where it stands out from everything else. There's something unique happening here. The second thing is that this language pulls together in a compressed and very symmetrical fashion. It is unusual. And the third and final thing is that these verses, verse 15 through 23, have an uncommon theological density. They are packed. And friends, what's critical for us to recognize is the wealth and the riches that are here for us. And the wealth and the riches focus on one place, and that is upon our Lord Jesus. And as we come back to this epistle of Colossians, it's important to remember that this was a young church And the congregation was doing relatively well. They were flourishing in the gospel. However, they were being troubled by some false teachers. And Paul writes to them, a church that he actually was unfamiliar with, but he writes to them to point them in a true and a good direction that they would keep in line with the gospel. His way of protecting the Colossian church is very instructive for us because he doesn't simply protect them by critiquing the opponents. He does offer critiques of their beliefs, but Paul is like any good football coach in the Southeastern Football Conference. He knows that a good defense, the best defense, is a good offense. And so he provides an offensive here in which he lays before us the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus, but not only the benefits that we receive, but he particularly dives into the riches of who Jesus is, casting an enormous vision of Jesus Christ from prior to creation to the end of all things. And this is what he lays out for us in this dense poetic verse from verses 15 from verse 15 through 23. And so you may ask the question, why is this important? If I know what Jesus has done for me, do I really need to concern myself with all the theological intricacies of who he is? And we're going to ask for your patience as I answer that question. John Calvin the Genevan reformer in book 1 of his Institutes writes about the necessity of this. Listen carefully to this quote. For each man's mind is like a labyrinth, so that it is no wonder that individual nations were drawn aside into various falsehoods. And not only this, but individual men almost had their own gods. Scarcely a single person has ever been found who did not fashion for himself an idol in place of God. 
And this is Calvin's answer to the question as to why we need to concern ourselves with these things. That it's not simply enough to know the benefits of the gospel as wonderful as they are, the forgiveness of sins, our redemption in Jesus. But we also must know all of who Jesus is, who he is in his identity, the one who gives us all of these great benefits, that there is a susceptibility, there is a proneness to idolatry that lives in the human heart that forces us, that places upon us the necessity to know who he is. If we don't, what we will be prone to do is then fashion him according to our own opinion according to our own design, that yes, we can even make an idol out of Jesus, creating our own version of him. And so today we're going to take a hard task. We're going to slow down. Some of you may even find this tedious, but we're, we're going to retrieve what Paul is saying, and we're only going to focus upon three verses, verses 15 through 17. And what happens here is that Paul intends to explode our small parochial notions of Jesus. And he explodes those small parochial notions of Jesus in order to expand our understanding of him. And in expanding our understanding of him, he wants to do one thing. And that is to induce us to have faith and confidence in him. And so as we look at these verses... We'll consider briefly four common ways that we are prone to underestimate Jesus. Those four ways is that we underestimate his transcendence, we underestimate his significance, we underestimate his works, and also his power. And so let's give attention to each of these. First, we are prone to underestimate Jesus' transcendence. We see where Paul begins in his poem. He is the image of the invisible God. It's interesting to note where he begins. Because he doesn't begin with the incarnate Jesus. Jesus in the flesh. He doesn't begin with the Old Testament and the elaborate types that come from the ceremonial system directing us to Christ. No, where he begins is he directs us outside of time, before the foundations of the world. He directs us to God eternally existent, the Godhead itself. And in the New Testament, the term image frequently signifies one of two things. At times, the term image can refer to a copy or reflection of another thing. And so you're familiar with images like this. It could be a portrait or a statue. But the term image is also used in a different way, particularly in the book of Hebrews. And there in passages like chapter 10 and verse 1, what we find about the term image is it refers to something that is a reality, the true substance of something else. And so an image is something that truly represents because it is that very thing. And this is the way the apostle uses this term here. 
when he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he is claiming that he is the reality, the true substance of the living God. He is no imposter. He is no mere reflection. He is not just a mere flimsy copy. He is indeed, in fact, the living God. He is equal with him in power. He is equal with him in glory. That yes, there is a distinction between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, but this distinction is not a division. There are not three gods, but rather there are three persons in the one Godhead. And friends, it is before this mystery that we confess that this is a mystery and it is great. But this is the sense of the apostles' usage of the term here. Jesus is the true substance, the true reality of the invisible God. And this is the first place that Paul begins. As he begins to draw us into the identity of Jesus, he establishes that eternal deity, that he has reigned with God in perfect fellowship and harmony from all eternity past. He is the image of God the true reality, the true substance, transcendent in being. And so this is the first thing that we can be prone to underestimate. Oftentimes in our focus upon Jesus' incarnate life, but Paul wants to correct that, and he wants to press us and pull us back before the foundations of the world to see Jesus in all of his glory. Second, we're also prone to underestimate Jesus' significance. You'll see where he goes after stating that he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation is the next line. And this statement is often confusing for people, especially when it's considered after what was initially said. He's the image of God, okay, so he's the truth, the reality, the substance of God. But yet the firstborn of all creation It seems that what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is a created being. Perhaps Arius was really right. Does Paul move from speaking of Jesus' eternal deity to being the first work of creation is the question that rises from the passage. What does it mean for Jesus to be the firstborn? It's important to recognize that the term firstborn is a metaphor from the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 4, Israel, the nation, is called the firstborn of God, the firstborn son. The firstborn son, of course, was the one who was the prime inheritor, the one who would receive an inheritance from his father. And this is the way the metaphor works. And then we find this metaphor also applied to David and to the Davidic line. In Psalm 89, in verse 27, this is what we read. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so here the notion of firstborn is tightly connected to authority. And it is authority over the nations. It is supreme authority. And friends, it is in this sense that Paul uses the term here. As he speaks of Jesus being firstborn. He is not speaking temporally. And chronologically, he's not putting it on the time scale, but rather he's speaking of Jesus' significance. 
that yes, this one who is transcendent, the eternal son of God, reigning with him from all eternity, is the firstborn and that he is supreme and he has power and rule over the nations. And this is the point that Paul exemplifies then in verse 17. In the first part of that verse, he states, and he, this Lord Jesus, is before all things. And so we want to take great care not to underestimate the significance of who Jesus is, that he is the firstborn, the ruler of all the nations. And third, we also see that we're prone to underestimate Jesus' works. Today in our service, we've been meditating and contemplating the creation of God through our prayers and through our hymns that we have sung together. And we've seen that Jesus has a role as the eternal Son of God. He is assigned by the source, the Father, a particular role in mediating the creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And so these verses are not shy to identify Jesus' role in the work of creation. By him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him, repeating it over and over This does not mean that the Son acts alone in creation. Paul simply states that Jesus is the agent of creation. Creation is from the Father. It is through the Son and it is by the Spirit. As we saw the Spirit of God active in creation, both in Genesis 1 and in Psalm 104. And so there is a concert of the three persons of the Godhead active in the works of creation But Jesus is specifically identified as the Word, the agent of creation. And so Paul mentions that he creates all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And then in the middle part of verse 16, he expands on this. And he says that he creates dominions, or thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities that all these things were created by him. It's a fourfold list, and many people are puzzled by it. Why exactly does he mention these four things? And these four things in first century Judaism were frequently used to refer to angelic and spiritual powers. And so what was happening with the false teachers in Colossae, what we know of them is that they were promoting angelic powers And saying that if you really want the secret sauce, if you want what it is to truly relate to God, then you need to come through us and you'll have access to these angelic powers and you'll be welcomed into the presence of God. And so what they were effectively doing was supplementing the gospel. They were saying you need something else. And note the apostles' argument that Jesus is the creator of all the angelic powers. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, he created them all. And by implication, he is saying that you do not need them for access. That the sufficient person for access is found in none other than the creator himself, Jesus Christ. And so we only need to look to him because ultimately a supplemented gospel for the Apostle Paul is a supplanted gospel. 
It is one that has been subverted and undertaken and undergone severe change. And so we don't want to underestimate Jesus' works and who he is as the creator, that he created all the angelic beings, all of that sphere, and that sphere is not superior to him. And finally, in Paul's poem, we see that we're also prone to underestimate Jesus' power. In verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It's interesting in growing up as a kid in evangelical churches and being taught the creation narratives of Genesis 1 and 2 and the significance of God speaking all things into existence and learning that well. But one of the things that I was not taught as well was the ongoing role of God in sustaining the creation. And yes, I was taught to pray at meals Lord, make us thankful for these and all our many blessings. In Christ's name we pray, amen. That's how it went. That's how I prayed for years, every time before I took food. But then through a particular set of circumstances, I began to note something, that there was a lack of gratitude and thanksgiving in me as a Christian. And that the Bible was making some profound statements that my being in this physical body is upheld by our Lord Jesus, and it's upheld not just because he made me, but because it's upheld right now in the present because he commands it to be upheld and sustained. And that it's not just my body and my physical frame, that it's all of creation. That Jesus presently sitting at God's right hand commands the creation to continue. That planets continue in their orbit, that the forces of gravity continue to work that the photosynthetic process inside of plants continues to operate, that the cells within your body continue to function to deliver goods and do all the functions that they serve because Jesus tells it to do so. That Yes, he commands, and it stands firm that Jesus is actively doing this, that, friends, we don't believe in a deistic God who created and wound things up and then steps back from it. No, we believe in an imminent God who upholds all things in his loving power and grace today. As a young pastor in Memphis, Tennessee, I remember sitting down with some friends to share a meal together. We were just getting to know one another. Melissa and I just moved from Orlando there. As we sat down, we were expecting to say a prayer. And they had lived outside of a southern context for some time And they said, oh, we don't do that. They were fellow Christians and really wonderful and warm people. And they said, we just kind of got out of the habit and we think it's kind of fuddy-duddy. And that's all perfectly understandable. You know the tradition of saying a blessing before sharing a meal together. And many people do find it rote. And why exactly do we do that? But it is a wonderful expression of this belief that it is by the power of our Lord Jesus that he sustains all things. And so that tradition emerging out of 1 Timothy 4 of praying over a meal before taking it is an expression of dependence. 
It's an expression that this is a gift from God. It's an expression of knowing that everything we have in life comes from him. And our Lord Jesus is sustaining the world in his grace and in his kindness. And so, friends, it's perfectly appropriate to give thanks to God. You don't have to have a set formula. In fact, it probably may be better not to have one, but to offer thanks from your dependence that he's giving you what you need, that he's sustaining you, that he's upholding you. This is the power of our Lord Jesus, even in the created realm. And so, friends, because of the native condition of our hearts, because of our sinfulness, we are prone to underestimate Jesus. And what we're prone to do is craft him in our own image, to make him one like us. However, healthy spiritual life needs the great offensive of the gospel, of what Paul does for us in casting a vision of who Jesus actually is, ascended and seated at God's right hand, but not just in this moment, pressing and pulling us all the way back before the foundations of the world, taking us into the origins of creation in which he spoke all things to, into existence, and into the present moment as he upholds it. And then also reminding us of all the glorious future in which all will be made right because the creation has not only been made through him, it is for him. And friends, we desperately need to always renew that vision of who Jesus is. This is the one who came. We'll focus upon that next week. But this is the glory of the one who came in the flesh and died for you. This is all the glory that belongs to him. And so in refreshing that vision, we then want to be lost in wonder and thanks and praise for all of his goodness and all of his good gifts. Let's pray. Father, we confess our weakness. We confess our small-mindedness. We confess our tendency, how prone we are to shape Jesus in our own image. Help us in that weakness. May we re recover all of his transcendence. May we recover his significance. May we re recover his power and his works. Will you impress these upon us that we see the greatness of our Lord Jesus, the one who came, the one who died, the one who was raised, the one who reigns in glory. We ask for your help in his name. Amen.